I think it's going to get murdery today, you guys. Yeah, I've got that feeling. Um, I asked if people were ready for murder, and it sounds like you are. We've got Jennifer. She's up there from Minneapolis. Mavens, Bella Peculiars. We've got several people saying hi. Susan, Anna, Santa Barbara, checking in. Um, lots of <laughs> always ready for murder, says Jennifer. Um, let's see here. I also, I thought, I'm sorry, I, Jennifer added these, but Teresa is like, did someone say murder? <laughs> Davey, did someone say murder? Hey, peculiars. <laughs> How's it going? Oh, yes, we are in for a murder. We're in for a treat. And uh, uh, we got, I mean, so many themes that have carried over from the first few books we read. We're mentioning Grave Robbers and Joseph Lister and... I feel like those first few books we read were like Peculiar Book Club 101. Yes. And now uh, and now everybody's ready for all these crazy tales that happen in this time period. Well, and I think, too, I mean, at this point, you guys are going to be practically experts on all the forensic murdery details uh, that we're going into. But even as, and I think I'm an old hat at this, but even as an old hat, there were some very surprising things in this particular murder. Don't you think so, Dave? Yes, this... <laughs> Uh, trying to figure out motivations, trying to figure out, uh, how he kept getting away with things. There was, uh, there were a lot of, I hope you guys have questions because yeah. I've got questions. I've got questions. Um, and you know who might have some answers? Are we ready to, are you guys ready? Oh, By ready. the way, we've been doing a terrible job pronouncing his name. It's Job. Care we ready to welcome Dean Job? And there he is. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Well, There's um, so many, so many questions going on here today. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I hope that you're ready to talk a lot of gruesome, grisly details because we're your, we're your audience. We're your audience for this. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, this uh, one thing that intrigued me about cream is it, uh, it is such a, so typically uh, a gruesome and, and macabre and uh, shadowy uh, Victorian uh, tale. Uh, I mean, I, uh, you've got the top hat on that that Cream would favor, and uh, uh, I mean, I can't think of anyone. He even looks like a villain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was saying earlier that one of the things that I think is problematic is often we romanticize villains, but you read this book and you're like, nah, he bad whole time. No, no confusion on that at all. So, um, so I do have to say, Kat, uh, who is our, our drinks maven, created something really special for the case of Dr. Cream. And uh, finger guns and lady paws. My lady paws helper is like, no, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. From the paws of lady paws, um, our beautiful, uh, mine's a little bit melty, uh, but our beautiful drink which is a, uh, I believe we went with creme de la crime. Is that right? <laughs> I, I, we have several names that we, it was uh, hosted in our newsletter. So if Kat wants to hop on in a minute and tell us about it, but this is a very decadent dessert-like drink and very creamy and probably sinful and enough sugar that it might be against the law. So I feel like we're, we're firing on all cylinders. Cheers to all of you. Who's, who's, who are you drinking a cocktail tonight at all? Uh, well, uh, uh... A responsible cocktail. A responsible, I, yes, always, always wise, always wise. I'm going to be responsible and take like my dairy pill. <laughs> I, uh, I just hope Dr. Cream didn't add anything to that uh, when you weren't looking. Yeah, you know, it does have uh, it, what the white stuff. I love that. white <laughs> stuff in it. Um, 
one of the things that is already coming up, this is so funny because um, we've been on for like all of what, four minutes and everybody's like motive, motive is an issue. Why is <laughs> So we are definitely going to hop into that. But I thought uh, since Davey's queued it up, we have a little, I, I did a little video promo for it and it's got some great hand porn, frankly. I think I did some nice hand work in there. So Davey, do you want to give us a little bit of a preview of the book, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Creed? It was a chilly night in London when Ellen Donworth collapsed near Waterloo Station. She was carried home, suffering violent convulsions and spasms. She said a tall, dark, cross-eyed man gave her something to drink, some white stuff. Sherlock Holmes helpfully said that when a doctor goes wrong, he is the first of criminals because he has the nerve and the knowledge to do great damage. This is the story of Dr. Cream, who really loved to murder. In fact, he was arrested, put in prison, and when released, took up the practice again with his favorite accompaniment, strychnine. If you'd like to hear more about the case of the murderous Dr. Cream and the hunt for a serial killer, join us at Peculiar Book Club and hear from Dean Job about just what kind of person, with his top hat, his cross eyes, and his penchant for the better things in life, decided that the best way to spend his time was by serial killing women. Hope you'll be there. Oh, we definitely got to give a hand for those hands. <laughs> Hand for the hand. Thank you. Thank you. I worked very hard at that. Um, and I know not everybody's read the book, but everyone is excited. So we do have a bunch of people who've read the book and people who haven't. Spoilers, there's murder. Um, <laughs> but uh, we can just start by like motive. This has come up a lot. How in the world do you come to grips with something that just seems so motiveless? It just seems as though he just turned up in life and went, you know what I really need to do? Let's kill some people. Well, is that funny? One of the intriguing things about this story is is uh, is the time, is the fact that you can see that the police, the press, the public really can't come to grips with this idea that here's somebody seems to be killing just for the sake of killing. Mm. Um, as one of the papers said, I mean, there's it's it's almost motiveless. Yeah, and uh, so that that was really intriguing to see, and. Uh, uh, there is a, there's certainly a motive suggested by his choice of victims, as you noted. Uh, nine out of his ten known victims were women, mm -hmm. and uh, they fell into two groups. One were uh, uh, women who uh, had become pregnant and were desperate to uh, to get an abortion, and Cream set himself up as an abortionist, right. uh, and was then giving them what he said would be medicine that would induce a miscarriage, but it was, uh, for the most part, it was strychnine. And then also sex workers in London when he did his final murders. But the motive, uh, it, purely, it seems to be purely hatred of women. Mm -hmm. And you can see an escalation of it. And and I guess maybe the, the origins, I mean, there's a whole pampered, narcissistic streak in him. He was oh, yeah. from a wealthy family, lots of money to send him to the finest medical school in Canada, uh, but trapped into an early marriage and, in fact, killed his young bride 
uh, by all but by all uh, accounts at this distance, uh, the evidence that was uh, available, it seems pretty clear that he sent her tainted medicine, and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps that's what started it off. But the uh, the severity of what he's doing and the ruthlessness uh, just escalates, as I said, from murder to murder. Yeah, I mean, it's and actually, um, I've got a question from Leanne. She starts us off by asking. Uh, so there's a Canadian connection here. <laughs> um, how did did you choose? Was that why you chose to research the book, or was it just kind of incidental that he was also Canadian? Well, I'm I'm, I'm just going to give Scotland a little shot here because oh, he yeah. actually was born in it in uh, the Glasgow area and came that. to Canada when he was four. But yes, we have to claim him as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably why I knew the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but of course, he he kills in three countries. He kills in the United States as well, and then and ultimately in England. Gets so around. he's just. He's one of these characters I just kept bumping into when I was doing uh, research into true crime in that period. And uh, uh, what fascinated me uh, is something that was uh, was mentioned off the top is how did he get away with so many murders in so many places? And that was really, the, for me, the, the, yeah. the, the clincher is to understand the limitations of forensics, policing, detection, mm-hmm. the justice system that allowed him to do this. Yeah, because, you know, I, I actually uh, was looking at the torso murders at one point as a possibility for a book project that I didn't end up writing. But that's another fascinating case where you, which similar to, to Dr. Cream, goes over a longer period of time. We tend to focus on Jack the Ripper, but that was actually a much more contracted period and possibly even a, a quite a bit smaller number of, of victims by comparison. So it's it's interesting what kind of grabs the attention of what's gets hidden away and, and, and disappears from the, the register of everything. You had mentioned you were doing research on true crime and you keep bumping into Dr. Cream, which is not somebody I'd want to bump into and certainly not to have a drink with. Uh, <laughs> but um, why don't you, I, it's, it's important, I think, for everybody to know, uh, this isn't your only book. You, you do all kinds of books on, on true crime and other kinds of historical documents. Did you want to say a few words about uh, what you're working on? We'll talk about what you're working on next towards the end, but some of the books leading up to this one. Well, I've, uh, I've, I, my, I started my career, I guess, in, in nonfiction writing as a journalist. Um, but specifically, I covered courts. My background was history. Started getting interested in old cases, so I uh, I'm in the province of Nova Scotia in Canada, and uh, I did some uh, some books of compilations of uh, of the true crime cases here, and then I found an absolutely fascinating case, and and you've got my website up here; it's going to cycle through some of the uh, the books. Um, I found a case, a book that uh, is called Empire of Deception, and it's just an amazing yeah. tale mm-hmm. of a Chicago. Uh, swindler named uh, Leo Kortz and his uh, 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 Ponzi scheme that predated Charles Ponzi. He'd been running a Ponzi scheme for almost two decades before the famous Charles Ponzi came on the scene. And he was just amazingly good. Uh, In fact, after Ponzi was exposed in the early 20s, uh, Leo Kortz's investors jokingly called him our Ponzi not realizing that he was indeed a Ponzi. And um, my luck was that uh, when it all went south for him in Chicago and he had to skip town ahead of being arrested, he came and hid out in Nova Scotia, uh, not maybe an hour's drive from where I live, and, uh, and, uh, and then started living under a new name and, 
and continuing to spend money like water. That's <laughs> the, the number of times people could change their identities, which, uh, I mean, I can't even, yeah. like, I can't even visit you in Canada without like giving, you know, signing over my firstborn. I don't have children, but if I did signing over my firstborn, um, you know, we really have no, it's not easy to lose your identity. It doesn't, it never happens, but it's, it's definitely not easy. Um, we had a couple of people who, who joined us just a little bit late. We've got um, Rebecca's popped in from Indiana and Sky's here. And we also have a couple of folks talking about what they're drinking. Not everybody uh, went with the, it is quite hot. So a, f- a couple of people said it was too hot for a cream drink. Leanne's got licorice tea and uh, Jennifer said she's got boring old lazy red wine. <laughs> um, someone said they have a tonic. Oh, here we go. Yes. Susan Ballinger. She's, she's it's too hot for creamy down here. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I think that we have a kind of, it's interesting connection for cocktails for this particular one, I think, this particular book, right? We always do cocktails for our books, but when you're talking about the fact that somebody actually poisoned people with strychnine yeah. and put it in their drinks, um, you know, I do think it was uh, certainly very uh, inventive of Kat to decide to go with a, with a creamy drink while we were at it. A um, couple other, let's see, comments. I lost one. Someone was commenting on my brooch here. This was actually given to me by Lindsay Fitzharris, who's an alumni. And uh, I saw her recently and it is, yeah, it's a giant sparkly squid guys, like not like kind of sort of, but like a lot. And it's, it's, it's big. Um, I forget whose question it was, but okay. Back to questions because we have a lot of them. Um, let's see. Kristen Meston says, my question is totally about the blackmail letters. Why? <laughs> you would have gotten away with it. if We hadn't drawn attention to them. Why did he do it? Well, that's, uh, that's, uh, I was going to say the million dollar question that, uh, that was one case that he almost asked for that much money. Um, I think, um, I think, uh, a Scotland Yard detective named McNaughton, uh, had it right, uh, when he was speaking to, of all people, the trial judge at Cream's trial in London, when he said it was almost like he just needed that validation, that attention. Uh, he went out of his way to draw attention to himself. And uh, while he uh, convinced uh, his uh, uh, a lady friend, his fiance, to write some of these letters, and she was mystified why she was writing these, and they were under assumed names, um, he wrote some in his own distinctive handwriting, and it ultimately led to his downfall. And what's really amazing is, not only does this lead to his downfall in London, But he'd been doing similar things in his early murders in Canada and the United States. And sometimes it seemed to have a motive. It it seemed to be some half-baked blackmail or or scheme to uh, deflect blame. Uh, He never seemed – I could find no evidence he ever collected a dime from these. So maybe it was simply this – uh, he just needed somebody to know how clever he was. I guess by yeah. being less clever, it's interesting. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Are we just dumber in the United States and Canada that we were like, oh, he's pointing attention to himself, but we didn't catch him? I mean, <laughs> no, he was caught. Well, though. He ended up going to prison for for a while. Um, yes, we can. Forget, we can take comfort in that. <laughs> I guess, but then he gets out of prison. Talk about not learning your lesson. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Stephanie Smith just wants us to know that she has a container of Nux vomica in her living room. Um, you might want to keep that away from the cocktail. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I did not realize, I, for some reason in my head, I had not made the connection that strychnine and nuxvamica were the same thing. Because I'm a historian of medicine too, and you, you see the words a lot, but I hadn't really thought about it. So, you know, in this particular instance, I mean, it isn't good for you. 
Um, but he was taking it too. And he wasn't killing himself, but he was also taking strychnine. Well, again, when you go back in time and you find out this deadly poison that Agatha Christie loved and, and other mystery writers have loved was actually a component of medicines because what strychnine does is it, it makes the nervous system go haywire and that's the uh, spasms and the, the, the fits and the seizures uh, and they call them tetanic because they're, they're like tetanus. Yes. And they do mimic yeah. some of those uh, symptoms. Um, but uh, in trace amounts, there's a benefit to this muscle stimulation, but only in trace amounts. And yes, he was taking some, but that's also one of the reasons he was able to access it. As a doctor, he could access this deadly right. poison and he could legitimately access it because uh, many doctors at that point still compounded their own medicines. Right. They learned this in medical school. So they were pharmacists, sort of amateur, for, not amateur, but they were pharmacists as well. You know, um, now I'm, Guys, you're going to have to help me out. I forget which book this was. I know we've read about this before, that strychnine was actually given to a runner, an Olympic runner, um, as a, what they thought it was a stimulant. Um, I think that was a book we read for this. You guys, I read a lot of books. But, uh, but that it was it, like caffeine or other eans. Um, yeah. it, it, has, it has a stimulant property to it, again, in trace amounts. I mean, you can break your own jaw if you have tetanus from the spasms. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of exactly what happens to you if you're poisoned with strychnine? Well, I, I, I wanted people to understand uh, the horror that he inflicted yeah. on his victims. Because, uh, you know, we were talking uh, before we came on about uh, Cream's redeeming features, which are none, really. <laughs> He's not a very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wanted people to understand just the gruesome death he inflicted on his victims. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, poisoning, well... Poisoning is deadly, obviously, but it's it's kind of seen as a sneak kind of uh, murder. It's uh, uh, almost like it's it's not sporting or something, and uh, not maybe as cruel in some ways. Uh, but uh, Cream, as a doctor, knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew what was going to happen. So, with the kind of doses he was giving, uh, the patients might live for hours. Uh, in excruciating pain uh, and these spasms, uh, muscles, uh, basically their, their back contracting almost in a loop. Oh. And in between these absolutely horrifically painful attacks, uh, periods of lucidity of knowing another one was coming. Mm. And probably in most cases, a certainty that they knew that they weren't going to recover from this. Right. So, it's hard to imagine a horrible, more horrible death. It's not like it was a quick poison right. and, and over. And uh, yeah, a couple of his patients lingered for, for many, many hours in excruciating pain. Mm. No, it's horrifying to think that you can actually like pull your own muscles off your bones just by the, the force of the spasms. It's just awful. Um, I also have uh, Jennifer Pierce. She was saying motive indeed, uh, definitely a psychopath, sociopath, but she's interested in why he didn't want to watch them die. Leanne had asked, uh, asked that question as well. Um, and I am interested in that too, because part of me was thinking that if you were into death this much and you were this bad of a guy, that there'd be some kind of getting off on the actual thrill of watching it. But he doesn't seem to have, have participated in that. 
Well, the one thing he did seem to understand is if he if he hung around, he might be might be arrested. That's true. Um, you know, it didn't seem to affect him writing about it, and uh, and uh, and 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 actually, and he also chummed around with Scotland Yard detectives. But that's that's in the book. Hey guys, how are you doing? Um, uh, I I think that maybe is a facet of the mania, the 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 madness of Cream, that he took some kind of delight in visualizing or knowing. And and I think there's an element of almost playing God here. I mean, what could be more uh, godlike than killing at a distance? Well, you know? yeah, that's and true. It, you know, and he, he would tell some of his some of his victims, you know, don't take the pill now. And he mean, even then, if they did, he'd have enough time probably that's to right. strand. He say, take it before bed, oh. and he's long gone. He's long, yeah. Wow. So he uh, he seems to whatever pleasure he derived, whatever sadistic pleasure he derived, seemed to be from what he could imagine. And and again, since he was a trained doctor, he knew exactly what it was makes, going to happen. You know, it makes me wonder if he practiced on animals, um, since so many serial killers do, uh, or, or many of them sort of start off and then and work that direction. I've never seen any evidence of it, but it does make you wonder no. a little bit. Um, um, I did I just, see no evidence, no. No. I just wanted to throw in a few things. Um, we have a couple of new folks here. Uh, Loves Dogs was saying, I thought it might be okay to participate even if I hadn't read the book because it was true. It's always okay to participate if you haven't read the book because really, we're going to make you want to by the end of it. Yes. Uh, Sky says, sure, I already have time to, uh, hardly ever have time to finish the books on time. We do have like two shows a week and it is a lot of books. So yes, you are welcome and do not worry at all. Um, we, we, we hope you come and if you haven't read the books already, you'll get enough of an interest that you'll be like, gonna add that one to my shelf. So um, let's see, question from Leanne. Victorian society allowed this sequence of murders to happen. Did the Victorian values themselves encourage either the killer to murder or encourage the fact that maybe they didn't look into it that closely? Well, both. Excellent question. And that's a theme I really wanted to develop in the book. You know, uh, he's contemporary of Jack the Ripper, and which makes it, which was intriguing for me. He shows up in London for his final murders three years after Jack the Ripper. And in the press and even in the Scotland Yard files, it's pretty obvious that Scotland Yard belatedly realizes that, oh, my God, there's another one. I mean, that's how rare they still were, these serial killers. Um, as bad as Jack the Ripper was, uh, Cream uh, really did benefit from uh, the mores of Victorian society. The women, look, he, he didn't have to go stalk his victims. Yeah. They came to him. Yeah, they saying. came to him. They trusted him they, for medical help, albeit an illegal abortion, sure. but still... They trusted him in their care, and when he said, take this medicine, mm -hmm. they trusted him. So that was a really big factor in the fact that, that women, by uh, the strict morality of the time of not being able to have a child out of wedlock, were driven right. into his clutches, and that is a really uh, uh, a sad part. And then for the sex workers of Lambeth and London, his final victims. Uh, you did. I did see evidence in the Scotland Yard files of the unreliability of these women, the, yeah. the, uh, uh, the stuff about their lifestyle that they were. How do we protect these women that are putting themselves at risk? Uh, you the did see victim and all that. You, yeah, you did see elements of that, and not as blatantly as you might have thought, but it was pretty clear that. Uh, well, certainly, uh, when Cream does stand trial, uh, n uh, no lesser figure than the trial judge, 
uh, is certainly quite upset to realize that Scotland Yard seems to have been less vigilant yeah. because the victims were sex workers, the early victims, and mm -hmm. perhaps that allowed Cream to continue to kill. Well, it might also explain, at least in some measure, why he went after those victims. In the, I mean, it could be, obviously, he seemed to have a hatred of women, but even if not, they're safer to go after. I'm a, I, I think that's that's they were more vulnerable, but they weren't just more vulnerable because... Um, because women are more vulnerable. They were more vulnerable because society left them so vulnerable. And I think that's really interesting. Um, Kristen Meston had another question about uh, concerning Jack the Ripper. If, if it's so easily proved that he wasn't Jack the Ripper, since he was in prison in Chicago at the time, why do people still keep him on the list as maybe being Jack the Ripper? Do we need more reason to dislike him? Well, yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Uh, he's he's such a likable character. We have to make him Jack the Ripper. Well, look, uh, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Why he's still on that list? And I, I, I make it clear in the book that there's absolutely no evidence that he either was Jack the Ripper or could have been Jack the Ripper. Right. And yes, he was. Um, there been some theories that well um you know they're, they're because because it's only because of the similarity similarity of the victims and or some of them anyway and a downtrodden neighborhood of london albeit a different one that uh, maybe he could be this it could be jack the ripper yeah. uh, uh, reprised um well jack the ripper used knives cream used poison that's quite right. a difference it's, it's a uh cream is a doctor was Jack the Ripper a doctor? Some people say he was. But the biggest impediment is uh, he was in prison in Illinois in 1888. But it's believe it or not, there, there are theories that that's not an ironclad alibi, that perhaps he paid someone to serve his sentence so he could escape to London. Mm -hmm. What he did in the intervening years, I don't know. No, I mean, it's, it's preposterous, really. And I was able to trace the origin of this whole idea that he somehow confessed on the gallows. And it's not a contemporary uh, thing of, of his case. It's a later, clear invention, uh, a decade later, uh, just a little item in the press suggesting that, that he'd made some kind of conf cream that confessed to being Jack the Ripper. And then it took on a life of its own over the the intervening time, you know, and that's why it showed up on the list. I think that's great. I I love that detail. I got to try and <laughs> I love that detail in the book because what a way to go out! Like you perplexed <laughs> you've perplexed people your whole life, your whole, and then just to leave them with a cliffhanger, you know, at the gallows. <laughs> except he didn't. Except I would argue he didn't do it. But if this yeah. is right. that he was but supposed to have said. Just as a trap door was sprung, he was Which actually, to you know, head. yeah. If, as if much only... as he loves to, to draw attention to himself, I wouldn't be like, I don't think it's him. But at the same time, couldn't you just see him being like, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> One yeah, last killer. Yeah, if only we could all leave an urban legend behind when we go, right? That's the legacy. <laughs> and, and I think that's why it's so durable. And it's this mm -hmm. business that he would have said that his last words purported to be, I am Jack the... Mm -hmm. And then the trap was sprung, and he was caught in that trades. Oh, <laughs> if if it happened, and I I argue pervasively, it never happened. But if it did, Brandy, yeah, I mean, it would it would simply it could simply mean that in this bizarre mind of his that uh, he wanted one last shot at glory, and what would be more glorious? The, but the problem yeah. is nobody at the hanging said a word about this at the right. time. You think it 
and I, <laughs> I think exactly. I think everybody would have said, hey, wait a minute, we may have solved another crime here. And that didn't happen. You know, it's really, it, so again, to go back to the book I did not write, I know it's awful to refer to books you haven't written, right? But um, but it was fascinating to me. That was another, um, they, a person who dissected their victims and they found them piecemeal and they had to put them back together and figure out which women's body parts went where and all that. And a lot of people suggested, oh, it's Jack the Ripper. And even the forensic people at this at the time were like, so no, <laughs> we have forensic evidence. These these are really different crimes. But everyone wanted it to be Jack the Ripper because then it meant there was just one psychotic killer that you had to worry about. It, I think it was much more troubling to people to think there were a bunch of people who might be murdering people. And it was much easier in some weird way to say, at least it's all one crazy guy and I don't have to worry about you know, the, the rest of the people around me, or I don't have to think that there's more than one threat coming. Um, I just mm. wanted to say a quick word about the difficulties of being a researcher uh, of history, because you just mentioned, like, you're having to kind of go like, all right, where did this come from? Did th I'm doing the lady pause things, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where did this come from? Is it real? Is it true? And kudos, because I, I've been in your shoes, um, not for true crime, but for other things. It is so difficult to un to sort of unpack, especially when there's headlines involved. Um, you must find that very difficult. Well, I I I know uh, Eric Larson's talked about this. Other nonfiction writers is is it's really uh, important to not get too bogged down into the layers and layers of secondary sources. What's yeah. been said about them? Uh, it's interesting, and I think you want to dissect that to see where. Uh, the uh, where some of the mythology has come from, but I want to go back to the original documents and and even though there'd been quite a bit written on cream, not not book wise, and and surprisingly, a lot of it's been fictionalized. Even though I think it's 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 an incredible true story, obviously. Um, but I wanted to go back to the original documents, and I found a lot of court files that no one had looked at, uh, which surprised me. But but that's sort of part of my practice is to go back to uh, what was known at the time, not not the stuff that's been added in. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, uh, I still see uh, things on the internet, newer uh, articles about cream, and they say that, you know, he killed two women in Edinburgh. Well, I know exactly where that came from. That's, mm -hmm. that's an invention probably from the 1950s or 60s, some feature that was done, and uh, no evidence of it. Uh, no yeah. evidence at the time and no evidence anywhere. Right. Uh, and, and one of the advantages, of course, I had was the Scotland Yard file, which was so uh, well done. And Scotland Yard sent a detective to America to learn all about Cream's earlier really? crime. Really? Okay. That's interesting. And I was... And that, that helped me for storytelling because then I had this Inspector Jarvis of the Yard basically following Cream's footsteps as I'm recreating what had happened the decade, decade and a half before. That's so cool. I mean, it's it's to find a source like that is so meaningful. I just, Davey, you might have to help me. I just noticed that um, my comment thread wasn't updating, and now it is. And wow, there's a lot. Okay, so there's I'm a lot. To, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a, a lot. there's a whole okay. conversation going I'm gonna on keep about my own mouth shut here and try to <laughs> try to get these over here. Um, there's a lot of discussion about how he used his um, his credentials to get strychnine, and the fact that he had credentials in the first place. He actually was a, a doctor who had credentials. And um, now I've lost my place a little bit here, but uh, I also really love Amanda's comment that comparing cream to mooter shows that not all ostentatious dressers are the same. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, 
the uh, well, and then talking about the acid bath murderer did the same. He told the police it was him, but he thought the police would never prove it. So there's a sense that policing was still in it. Uh, that certain forensic things were still in their infancy. And as much as we might talk about, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes was a fiction, and the reality was much more difficult. Things were very difficult to to prove. Um, so I, I've lost track. Davy, if you can hunt up, I've missed a couple of questions that I know had to do with that. I also see someone's asking about a funny story you've told. Oh, yes. <laughs> about um, how easy was it to locate quarter records in Boone County? Uh, seemingly difficult task if they were stored in the basement. Well, uh, just to tell a quick story, this is a this is the murder that Cream actually is convicted of in Illinois and spends ten years in prison before he gets out and goes to London for his finale, I guess, for want of a better word. And uh, I knew there would be a well. I, again, since I was a court reporter and covering the courts, I I know that even at, at this distance, uh, it's not uncommon for really old court records to still be in the original courthouse. And uh, it took me quite a few phone calls to connect with. Uh, they kept saying well, you have to talk to this clerk and she's only in twice a week. So I finally, I have my spiel. I mean, you know, how am I going to say it's this case, 1881 cream? And she says, oh yeah, I've got that on my desk. <laughs> because she was actually writing a little history of the program. <sighs> So that was a, that was a really lucky find, and that's yeah, that's the story. That's that's awesome. No, I you know what? I used to work in a medical museum, and I won't. I think it's best if we just imagine that everything's housed in a way that makes sense. Um, but it's it's not, Davey. I don't. I think you've even looked behind a couple of the panels in yeah. there a couple of times. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You've been, yeah. I've taken you. So yeah, behind the scenes of museums are a mess. I mm -hmm. think Anthro Girl's comment here sparked a lot of conversation about the uh, yeah. obsession with true crime and. Mm -hmm. Uh, the focus is mostly on the criminals and not the victims. And this kind of sparked a long conversation in the chat thread. Right, right. Because Chloe yeah. was saying that, uh, you know, for instance, oops, I was going to pop up Chloe's there, that uh, the legend of a person whose identity we can't confirm, like the Ripper, but then don't seem to care about the women. There is a book called The Five, uh, which came out last year, I don't mid-pandemic. Um, and, uh, and it does focus on the women and interestingly enough was not a particularly good seller. And I feel like that says a lot about the, the kind of culture in which we, we tend to live. I, I wouldn't mind jumping in on that because one of the things I wanted to do was to restore some dignity to his victims, to mm -hmm. make them people as best I could. Because, I mean, I'm reading some of the secondary, uh, some of the more recent work done and, and the names are wrong. Some of them aren't even named. Right. And I thought, well, you know, let's at least get their names right. Let's yeah. at least find out who they were. And they weren't all sex workers. And they weren't all, you know, a lot of them were struggling young women who, mm -hmm. as I said, came to cream in desperation. And uh, uh, so I really wanted to uh, uh, to do that. And, and when you read the book, you'll see that every victim uh, leads off a chapter with their yeah. name. Because again, I didn't want people, and it's easy in this case. I mean, yeah. 10 murders, it's a statistic. And I didn't right. want it to be a statistic. So I, I did. So it's a, it's a totally, it's an important question. And, and again, I didn't want to look so much. Uh, I had to recreate Cream's murders because I wanted you to hate him. <laughs> I wanted you to really hate him because he's such a fiend. Yeah. But my focus always was, the hunt. How mm -hmm. did he get away with it? And what does that say about Victorian society and the uh, status of a professional doctor? Because he often cashed in on that when yeah. he was a suspect. Because right. many of these women were known to be his patients. Yeah. The early yeah. 
Yeah. But, you know, and doctors were thought it was being above suspicion so much of the time. Um, Kat asks uh, that he's been called a smart sadist, a man hungry for money, an attention seeker, and someone obsessed with sex. What do you think? And I know it's always hard to guess, but if he lived today, what do you think we would have discovered about his mental health? Well, it, it's it, it, it's not a pretty picture you've painted there, and I think you've <laughs> nailed it. Um, I mean, I, I you know this this is a time before um, uh, you know even the word serial killer uh, would be almost a century before we'd have the word mm-hmm. serial killer as we know it today, and. Um, uh, it was interesting to read in the press. The British Medical Journal was one that, that, that covered this in uh, in detail, thinking about um, what does this say medically or in in terms of psychology. And uh, when you read the book, you'll find out that uh, one, well, one interesting thing is: will cream plead insanity? Because there's so much madness here. Uh, I would argue there's so much method. He's yeah. so careful. Uh, he's he's careless in some ways, but he's so methodical in others, sourcing the strychnine, getting better and better at finding better ways of getting his victims to take it, um, that, that mitigate against that. But uh, at his trial, the prosecution actually had four alienists or psychologists, right. psychiatrists in the audience taking copious notes. Unfortunately, those notes don't didn't survive. Oh, no. that I could find. They're not in the files, but they were all they were all ready to counter any kind of uh, insanity defense that might come. Um, I think he'd be seen as a psychopath, obviously yeah. sociopath, psychopath, and because uh, really, he um, just had I no, no he, remorse. No, not even after no, a certain time. No, none at all. No remorse. Uh, just absolute. Uh, well, evil incarnate, really. I mean, he's. He's as close as you're going to get, I think. Yeah. Um, Susan Ballinger pointed out, you know, we, we talk about how rare serial killers were, but then again, it's hard to know how rare they were. Uh, lower class women tended not, well, they underreported as well. Um, one of the things that I discovered in, in a lot of my research, if you were a young single woman and you were walking home, so you worked at a factory, it's after dark, they just assumed you were a prostitute. Uh, when the Contagious Disease Acts were passed, they were police were just arresting women. Um, they were like, well, you're on the street, you're by yourself, you must be a prostitute, so we'll arrest you. You know, Of course, if you were arrested and you couldn't go to your job, you lost your job. If you were pregnant and you had to take time off, you lost your job. So you know, the, the, the concept that there was no place to go. If you were a young woman, even if you were a married young woman, if, you couldn't, if the two of you couldn't afford without, uh, to live without a second income, it, you would probably seek an abortion because you'd lose your job. There's no like paid maternity leave or anything. So they underreported they're certainly, if they survive it, they may not report it because they were seeking an abortion, right? There's all these different kinds of things that work in, uh, against them. And uh, then uh, Rebecca Gibson was saying, we're probably going to see upticks in victimization with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So your book is really, in many ways, I think, very present suddenly in ways that you might not have anticipated when you were writing it. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, the fact that abortion was underground, illegal, uh, that uh, uh, doctors, some doctors felt pressured to help uh, women who were really insistent. Um, and I quote, I quote um, a, a contemporary observer at the time saying that, uh, you know, the idea of a woman having a, a, 
a child out of wedlock was a living death. I mean, that's how strict it was. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and, and this book shows that uh, uh, the restrictions uh, opened, opened uh, uh, women to vulnerability. And, uh, and that, no doubt in my mind, I mean, I, I say it again, that, you know, uh, it, Cream wasn't out there stalking young women. They were coming to him because they thought they could trust him yeah, to their which peril. Is, which makes it, I think, so much worse. Uh, I mean, yeah. not that Jack the Ripper is better, but it, there is a sense in which um, being betrayed by someone you trust seems so much worse than than otherwise. Um, Kristen was saying, wasn't forensic science just in its sort of early stages at the time? There seemed to be a lot of controversy over the doctors who did testify, that, that and that seemed to work in his favor. Um, did you want to? I mean, I know forensic. I, I've studied the history of forensics too, and the fact that um, even blood tests were quite. I mean, that that came along quite late. Uh, I published a piece in uh, Crime Reads about it. And then it wasn't even picked up readily. So even once we had some of the forensic things, people were like, that's interesting, and went on without it. One of the challenges I faced was uh, three different locations. Uh, small town Canada, uh, which had one set of uh, no detectives, a coroner trying his best to get to the bottom of a murder that Cream was involved in. Uh, Chicago, uh, where the police were yeah. known to be corrupt and inept. <laughs> and uh, uh, problems there. And then in London, where the top uh, the top toxicologist in England, uh, Thomas Stevenson, um, he was involved in this case, and he confirmed the presence of strychnine by tasting fluid taken oh. from the cadavers of the victims, and that was considered cutting edge because wow. he because his his parlor trick was that he could identify up to fifty poisons. By putting a sample on his tongue and and uh, experiencing the burning sensation, one of them was strict. Um, neat trick. Um, I'm with Rebecca. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow! Oh my goodness. Um, okay, so I have uh, I have normally we break right about now for a musical guest. We don't have a musical guest, and that's good because it's going to take me forever to get through all these questions. Um, Oh, Kathleen, by the way, she also, like me, was like, ah, no research, no, we need that. It's not right. Um, uh, but then I, then I just was looking over another one here. Um, did anyone hear this? Uh, oh, um, shocked at his brother constantly standing up for him when he would have been one of the only people in position to know all of the allegations of him, about him from before. I mean, that's interesting. There was there was also that continued, and they asked about the dad too. The dad always yeah, the dad. standing up for him and giving him money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the the um, I, I hope when you read the book, you, you'll see there's some nuance here. Uh, they're talking about his father, William Cream, was a rich timber merchant in uh, Quebec City, Canada, and uh, his uh, his uh, his uh, brother Daniel. Uh, who uh, took over uh, the firm and uh, uh, where uh, where uh, Thomas Neal Cream was sent to uh, medical school to become a doctor. Uh, Daniel, I think it's important to point out that his family didn't know what you know when you read the book. Mm -hmm. They, some of them, they weren't even sure he'd been married. They never met his bride. Oh. They didn't know why she died, and he was never charged in that case. Um, they don't seem to have known about the mess he got into in London, Ontario, Canada. And uh, his father did support him and did hire a lawyer 
uh, for a trial in Chicago, but that was one, another murder. In that case, Cream was acquitted at trial. And you mentioned about his status as a doctor. His whole defense was, no, no. And in this case, it wasn't poison. It was one of the, it was a different case. He uh, had botched an operation, an abortion. And it was like, no, he's too highly skilled a doctor to have done this. And the jury bought it. Um, but his father, his father cut him off, essentially, after he went to prison in the uh, 1880s, cut him out of his will. Uh, there was still money provided by the estate. But one of his father's friends made it clear that uh, that the whole stress of this, his father was extremely pious, upstanding, Presbyterian, uh, probably hastened his death. The, the stigma and the strain of this right. on the family. And it just, it, it does seem interesting to me that, um, well, I, I'm listening to the audiobook. I tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks. And so I'm listening to the audiobook and I'm in my basement, which is a nice, creepy place to read about murder. Um, and um, it's interesting to me how there's no way that it, as his, as his crimes compound, I find that like, even his name, like just cream, like it just, it just, he just weeps awfulness, you know? Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, he, he got married, he convinced someone to marry him uh, or he was forced into it, but whatever, but he, he did, you know, there were people who clearly supported him. His brother supported him. He gave his own wife an abortion, but it's very unclear that it's difficult to see exactly what, what the situations were around that. So Susan asked, Susan Cotter asked, do you think he just took advantage of the, like, I just like murder, I'm a psychopath, these people are here and they're vulnerable, or was he trying to punish? Like, was he actually like, I hate them and I want them to die? Because um, I've seen that in other in other serial killers, but I feel like there's just this, I think that's part of the mystery that seems to be the exact hatred or wording is, is still kind of missing. Well, one of the difficulties I had with Cream is there seem to be multiple things going on. And every murder, every murder's similar but different. And as I said, there's an escalation. And certainly uh, his lawyer in Chicago, he talked, they were talking about prostitution. Now, at this point, none of his victims had been prostitutes. They'd all been women seeking, mostly been women seeking abortions. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, uh, you know, that uh, all these women should be killed, which would be startling, you'd think, but the, <laughs> the lawyer sent him on his way. <laughs> and uh, and then when he was in London, uh, someone he befriended, uh, a drinking buddy, said that he, he talked about the women of Lambeth as cattle who should be killed. So, you know, there was this escalation along the way. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder, you know, looking at it, I wonder if maybe being trapped into that marriage where yeah. he performed the abortion, they still forced him to marry uh, Flora Eliza Brooks, who uh, was his, his wife, uh, because he uh, the day after the wedding, he said, "I'm out of here. I'm going to London, England, to further my education." And she never saw him again. And right. he's but he's but it was discovered that he was sending her medicine, and there was no investigation at the time. But a decade later, when there was reason to follow up and find out what Cream had been up to, uh, her, family doc her family doctor said, you know, he really believed that Cream had slipped her, had slipped her uh, uh, poison. And that was a totally unpunished crime. Unfortunately, right. he could have been stopped then, should have been. 
It's it's very interesting to me that uh, the, the, I just put it, put it up there a second ago. The blind trust in doctors, right? We do. Um, it's it's like people are like I'm. I play a doctor on TV, right? We even trust TV doctors. We trust pretend doctors in commercials. Like there's a sense in which we have put medicine on such a, a pedestal, and I I, I I attack this in a lot of different angles, right? Because I'm in a medical humanities journal where we use the humanities to look critically at medicine. But in this country, there's even now, today, yesterday, last week, we still have this sense that somehow doctors are, are above. Um, and, it, you know, it's it started a long time ago. <laughs> it's still going on. Generally speaking, we don't blame the doctors. We, we think the doctors have our best interest in mind. Um, I do think there's more questioning now than there used to be. Davey, would you agree? I feel like, but, you know, it, there's still this sense that, of course, you'll trust them. You know, Anthrogirl says people trust me and I only work in the doctor's office. <laughs> well, and I mean, Cream is an outlier here. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it's not like uh, McGill Medical School in Montreal was producing serial killers. You well, know, I mean, right. that, I mean they're and, uh, I, and I did think it was important to resist the idea that that somehow he'd been turned into this murderous monster at medical school. But I did, uh, you mentioned uh, The Butchering Art, uh, Lindsay Fitzharris's mm -hmm. uh, book about uh, Lister and uh, the, the butchering art being surgery in yeah. uh, Victorian times. And Cream experienced that. Uh, you know, no, uh, no anesthetic, uh, no sterilization uh, that... Uh, it, and, the uh, theory. and what yeah and one one interesting i mean he did dissections but they never operated on the internal organs because right. which you know they never learned how to operate on them because no one would ever survive that surgery at that time yeah. so yeah they didn't do that so uh uh you know it was really telling uh, details like that but um you know, there was a lot of talk about uh, some of the students, uh, fellow students who went through McGill and, and went through that training that it did change people because it was really such a, a bloody, brutal business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe that was a little bit of a factor. Uh, you already had this damaged individual with potential to go where he went. Um, but what the medical school did was give him all the skill he needed and all the knowledge he yeah. needed to go out there and kill there's a lot of talk about the butch, uh, the uh, torso murderer in England being pr probably medically trained because either they said he's either that or a butcher because nobody takes apart a person in so uh, you know efficient a manner. Um, so Amanda points out something interesting. On the other hand, so on one hand we have people with blind faith in doctors. On the other hand, there's people who don't trust medicine or vaccines or whatever, and we have quackery. Uh, we actually had Lydia Kang on talking about quackery. I think that's where that strychnine. Uh, um, anecdote came from. So it is interesting. We have too much trust in some ways, not enough trust in others. Yeah. No, and that's fair. And again, we're, we're going back over a century to, uh, to where, uh, but you know, a professional like cream was, was, uh, a, uh, he was afforded, uh, not just by his patients going to, him. uh, you could, I could see it in the records, the police dismissing him. Um, yeah. the, um, um, he's walking around London with a samples case of medicine that he got from the States and took with him over there, including a vial of strychnine. And two of the investigators, two of the Scotland Yard investigators into the murders in Lambeth still don't think he's a possible suspect because he's Everyone a doctor. Has <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he's, he seems to be a guy who sells 
He says he sells this is a samples case because he's a wholesaler in right. uh, in in medicine components to doctors. Well, he was he was um, <laughs> I mean he's quite good at lying. I mean I, I, he doesn't strike me as a particular. So one of the things you learn about H. H. Holmes or uh, this uh, Devil in the White City is a lot of times these serial killers are are also quite charming. He does not strike me as a particularly charming individual. So. Um, at least from your notes, it doesn't seem like he should have been able to like swan in and charm people out of things. And yet he does escape the noose of justice repeatedly. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Well, that's a really good point because you no know, char- charm is not his, his <laughs> strong suit. I mean, one of the things he's doing in London when he meets, he meets a new guy at a restaurant and pulls out pornographic images <laughs> to, to show him, you know, he's got these great, I mean, not exactly like, you know, uh, uh, I thought I was socially good first awkward, impression. but I've never pulled out pornography at a dinner table <laughs> discussion. <laughs> and, he's, and he's taking too much morphine and, uh, and, uh, he's, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's very, uh, he's a very unlikable guy. Um, and the, uh, and any sort of, uh, of space he's afforded or, uh, or credibility he's given really is tied to this fact that he has this professional status right. and early in his career. I mean, he was actually certified. He got his license from the college of physicians and surgeons in Edinburgh, Scotland. He sat the tests and that was the gold standard. And he put that in his ads when he moved to a new town to attract patients. He pulled out that certificate at a trial and was acquitted. I mean, he had sterling credentials uh, for the time, and um, he used them. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Anthro Girl, oops. Oh, no, you guys, you guys type really fast. Uh, Anthro Girl had just said something about she thought she'd heard this, uh, some of this stuff from another serial killer, and, and it makes you wonder how similar a lot of them are with each other. There it is. Yeah. And then also, uh, Susan Cotter said, it does make you really appreciate the regulation of our drugs, right? Um, because, no, we just, we just, we just did kill shot last time. <laughs> so sometimes that regulation has loopholes. You know, I was just thinking about it. You know, they take a Hippocratic oath. They, we, we send them to all this, you know, years of training in school. Uh, you know, you don't trust your mechanic. Because they didn't take a Hippocratic oath, right? You, you <laughs> judge everything they tell you about your car, but you don't judge the <laughs> doctor. Right, right, right. Maybe they should take a Hippocratic oath of the car. Speaking yeah, of cars, <laughs> you guys might really enjoy the skit that's coming up for next um, <clears throat> next time. Uh, but we are we are starting to run loose on time. Or sh- loose. We're running loose. We're running short on oh, it's time. A and loose I, show tonight. It's loose. It is a loose show. You know, it's a lot of murder involved. There was a creamy cocktail. So it is time, Peculiars, for the Davy Quiz. Stump the author. But don't worry. Don't worry, Dean. You can ask the Peculiars for help in finding the answers. So I'm going to take myself out of the feed temporarily. I've got some winners to give and some updates to give afterwards. But I'm going to like... Brandy does a very good job of throwing their answers in. So they'll be there to help you out. But... Uh, we've talked about the, you know, cream. We've talked about the victims. The one character we haven't gotten into, and I'm glad we're saving this for the end is Scotland Yard. So, uh, the quiz this week is called on the case of Scotland Yard. And those are out of order right there. I hope you didn't see the answer. Uh Oh, I lost my uh, first question. All right. We'll jump to question two while I load up the uh, first question, but uh, these are questions about Scotland Yard. I did a little bit of research in the history of them. 
So uh, the first question for you, they may not have been the first to use this investigation technique, but they did help popularize it in the world. Was it A, fingerprinting, B, good cop, bad cop, or C, confidential informants? What do you think Scotland Yard made popular in the world? Do I get to phone a friend? No, I'm just kidding. I believe that. I believe it was fingerprints. Yeah, Peculiars, you got to chime in here. Help, uh, help them out here. They're saying fingerprints. I think they're And, right. and I'm going to stall while I uh, reload question number one. There it is. And the answer was yes, fingerprinting. Uh, I guess uh, they'd been using it in India back in the, as far back as the 1800s. Uh, there was something about a billiard ball theft that was like the first case where they used fingerprinting. I don't know. Someone stealing billiard balls out of the billiard hall. I, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Well, the uh, the one that strikes me is there. Uh, I it was early in the 20th century, uh, and Scotland Yard was known as the first murder case where uh, a bloody fingerprint was found on a, a windowsill and yeah. it was used. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the answer or not, but quiz question number one: London didn't have a formal police force until 1829, but instead of taking the name London Police Department. They got their unique moniker from A, the chief inspector's dog. Was it a Scottish terrier? Uh, B, an adjacent courtyard, a literal yard. Or C, from their Scottish bagpipe corpse that they were famous for. What do you, where do you think the name Scotland Yard comes from? Uh, peculiars, what do you I feel think like about I might know one? the answer to this one, but I'm waiting to see what the peculiars have to say. Well, I, I, should I give it away? Because I think I know this, but... Uh... Just Brandy did pop in like Kilroy, yes. <laughs> uh, oh, I don't think so. Uh, he's saying not C. What else do you think, Peculiars? I think that might be right. B. Is Kristen right? I think Kristen's right? got it. Yeah. The answer I, is I, yes. An adjacent yeah. courtyard. The answer is B. Uh, apparently, it was the site of a former medieval castle where Scottish royalty stayed, and then all was left was this courtyard. And I bet you there were bagpipes played, just saying, and someone probably had a scotch. I thought it'd be fun if it was the chief inspector's dog. I thought that would have been fun. All right, quiz question number three about Scotland Yard. Uh, Scotland Yard's headquarters now, their modern headquarters, has a few secrets, including this secret room that houses the blank. Is it the officer-only speakeasy, just like the Raven Master has in his Tower of London? Is it the recording studio, you know, for the officers to unwind? Or is it C, the crime museum? What do you think it is? I think it's C, because uh, it used to be known as the Black Museum in uh, Cream's time. And it uh, it was this bizarre, this macabre uh, collection of uh, seized weapons, some still with blood <laughs> crusted on them. And uh, they used it as a training tool. They would take recruits down and they were supposed to sort of get a sense of the criminal mind from some of these uh, leftover exhibits from trials. At least I hope I'm right with that. You are right. It is the crime. <laughs> are you right? Someone did say B in the chat and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. They, there's, yeah, a, there's, yeah. a jam, there's a garage band of <laughs> Scotland Yard detectives, I'm sure, somewhere. Um, yeah. I, so yeah, I the like crime that. museum was interesting. And it's a I, private, it's still private. You have to get a special invitation. You don't just get oh. to visit it. Well, Kristen, uh, Kristen yeah. Meston, she was three for three this time. So well done there. I wish it was uh, B. 
<laughs> my uh, my research in London actually predated uh, the formal establishment museum, but it was open on invitation. And unfortunately, the two times I was in London doing my research, the fellow who ran it was not there. Oh because, no! Because they have creams, they still have cream sample case with the oh. vials of vials of poison and medicine. Oh, that's in very it. interesting. So I really you know, wanted yeah. to see that. We, I, there is, I. Sorry. I honestly think that's why doctors' museums existed, though, a little bit. I think it's sort of like, see this? You're going to put this right up someone's? Like, I think that sometimes yeah, that was kind yeah. of a similar sort of... Yeah, you should come see Brandy, Brandy's old museum in Cleveland. My old it, museum. It's a site. It's, there's some things in there. I think there might still be videos out there of me giving weird tours Maybe? to... We had a lot of forceps. <laughs> My favorite part was in telling teenage boys where those went and what they were for. Yeah, I caused one of them to pass out once. <laughs> i do speaking of being a great conversationalist i do have to slip a question in here because you mentioned the the man he ate dinner with and it seemed like he actually formed a friendship with that person like they continued to eat multiple meals together that was a thing that carried on and uh, yeah there was the guy on the boat that was stuck with him as like a you know a drinking partner so uh you I wanted to ask you sort of about the psychology of that. Like, was that just a thing in Victorian times that if someone showed up at your dinner table, you were stuck with them or, um, you know, why would this person continue to spend time with cream and talk with cream when he was clearly, uh, you know, perturbed by him? Well, uh, you know, well, first of all, as a researcher, I love having these eyewitnesses. So I guess I didn't, I didn't want to fault them. Like, you know, I'm hanging around with cream a little, too much myself, even though it's at a distance in my time. But, you know, it's a good point. And uh, in uh, in one of the Canadian uh, murders, uh, uh, there's a fellow that uh, knew him really well. And, uh, you know, obviously multiple encounters with him. Uh, it, it wasn't his charming personality necessarily. Uh, uh, you mentioned the fellow on the steamer who had the misfortune of having a stateroom across from Cream. And Cream would crash in every night with a bottle and force him to stay up. And this guy, this this guy was genuinely terrified of him yeah. and thought, you know, I don't, I better pretend that I, I like this because he was mm. so uncomfortable. So there were, uh, there were some people that I think it wasn't, uh, wasn't necessarily voluntary, but and, I'm grateful, grateful for their uh, insights. And you, you know, and you thought your freshman college roommate. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just imagine though, I was someone's freshman college roommate. <laughs> think about that. Um, Actually, I, I was once on a cruise, and they do assign you dinner partners, and you're not allowed to change tables. Yes. And I almost swam home. And it would have been a long trip. <laughs> I've been lucky. I've only had good experiences with that so far. So I really hate cruises. Lucky. A friend of mine was getting married on the cruise. I do not like boats because there's water under them. I like water when I'm on land. Like, look, water. Lovely. I like water when I'm underwater, so I can scuba dive. Something about the boats really bothers me. It's like being on top of the water is weird. I don't get it. Um, being on top of the water with unfriendly people is even worse. Amanda asks, isn't isn't one of those guys that he tried to befriend one of the ones he tried to pin a murder on then? 
Did he follow uh, up and blackmail that person? No. Uh, Cream Cream fired high when he picked his blackmail victims. One was a, an MP who uh, owned owned the W. H. Smith uh, bookstore empire. Uh, one was the uh, physician to the royal family, and another was an earl who was divorcing his uh, actress wife. And in each case, he uh, he accused them of a murder. He posed at various different names, sometimes as a private detective. Oh my god! Uh, but he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't pick on this fellow. But this uh, this dining companion came forward uh, to one of the London newspapers later, and uh, just gave a long interview about oh this goodness. sort of encounter. Uh, you know, and of course. As creepy as he was, mm-hmm. he may not have enjoyed his company, but nobody knew they were sitting with one of the, you know, premier serial killers of all time. Fair, fair. You know, fair, that's yeah. a later thing that you kind of <laughs> discover. I, I can see how that could be an uh, interesting conversation for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, but think about it, guys. Maybe we've had dinner with serial killers and we don't know yet. I've been on a lot of airplanes. I'm just saying, I was on that cruise. I wouldn't be at all surprised if one of the people I was stuck eating with was a serial killer. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> see that. Um, so we are we are running uh, towards the end of our show. You guys, for last questions, last comments, please get those in there. While we're doing that, I'm going to give a couple of announcements. It has been an amazing time. <laughs> it has been amazing. <laughs> um, but um, I will say that that's why I stay home. This is really funny, you guys. Their, their response to my point about eating with serial killers. What, no one's interested in that? You're not writing a book about it, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, I do have some announcements. One of them, uh, Davey's queued up. So this is our last show of season two. This is also, uh, as of last week, Thursday, I think, was our year anniversary. We've been doing the Peculiar Book Club for one year, two seasons, full seasons, busy seasons uh, and we're getting ready to step into season three season three we're doing a few new things one is a t-shirt that is specific to the season that you can purchase uh from me and many of you took the survey to see uh what you wanted us to put on there i asked if you guys wanted it to be murdery or squiddy and you guys were like how about cephalopods and murder uh <laughs> so that's what we ended up with and uh we we put it there with it's got some a shaker and a martini and a knife and a poison book and lots of things i did design the octopus um on the back of the t-shirt there are all the authors and other people that will appear on the show in this time so you guys can in fact get this t-shirt and it can come to you and you can have it um you'll just have to contact me and I'll be sending a note out with the uh, newsletter with that pretty soon. Got a lot of people saying cheers. Woo, happy anniversary for us. Uh, Leanne was saying she's hoping you had a good time, Dean. We hope you'll come back. We actually love having authors a second time. Once you've been an alumni, you can never really escape us. Uh, (laughs) Okay. um, Yeah, it's true, but it's in a good way. (laughs) No, I'd love to. And uh, this has been great. Uh, And, uh, well, I'm always finding uh, bizarre characters in my next... uh, well, my next character is a gentleman jewel thief from 1920s New York. Uh, I, I call it a, I call it catch me, catch me if you can, uh, meets the Great Gatsby. So uh, it's, oh, it's quite, it's quite a tale. My heart. <laughs> I, you know, there's a part. I, this is an actual Victorian top hat, um, but my my second favorite hat that I wear all the time is my 1920s. Um, little fedora so yes this is this is right up my street i i feel like you could come back and this time just so you know our peculiars actually turn up in person sometimes <laughs> with our banner um when uh 
when when people when we our alumni authors appear other places. So we will keep in uh, keep in track keep track of you. We see uh, several people here. Susan saying, "Oh yeah, 1920s New York is my thing." Jewel Thief book, um, lots of excitement here. Gentlemen Thieves, also bizarreness is always good. So you are um, you're definitely among friends here, Dean. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, my last is I, I now do a hat pick where I pick people's names out of a hat to receive uh, swag. The swag isn't here yet. I'm still waiting for it to arrive because apparently everything is back ordered. But the names I picked today is Sadie Simmons and Paige Turner. Sadie Simmons and Paige Turner. You guys send me an email and I will get your addresses for when at some point the new t-shirts are right, not the uh, season three t-shirts, but the other ones, which I forgot to send Davey a picture of, but it's the one with the Nautilus. So it says peculiar book and then has a bloody club. So it's peculiar book club oh. <laughs> uh, just for you. So um, please check in with me. Yes. Good. Good job. I see we get some congrats. Sadie Simmons has heard it. Yay. Um, Chloe wants us to do a day where we can do a UK event with a banner. It's coming, Chloe. It's coming. I, I feel like at some point in the future, I'm going to steal Davy, and we're going to go. We're going to take this on the road somewhere. Brandy um, was on your continent recently, just not. I was. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Future swag, future swag. Yes, Paige, you got it. Um, field trip says Leanne. I agree. Uh, I actually will be. I will be in the UK in uh, August, I think, and again in December. So now that uh, travel has loosened up, I spend a lot of my time over there. I was in Berlin earlier this year for research, but. Um, how about Canada, eh, says Kelly. <laughs> I was in Toronto, what, a couple weeks ago, but I missed you. It has been a marvelous time. Dean, I feel like we could talk for hours about this. What a fascinatingly weird guy Cream really was and how wonderfully you brought him to life, but at the same time without making us like him, which is like, that's, <laughs> you know, like I liked the book and hated the guy and I'm astonished that you were able to pull that off. It was really good. Um, and, uh, and I know everyone else enjoyed it too. And, it's just been wonderful. Any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, like, for instance, when that 1920s book might be coming out? Well, thanks. Uh, look, this has been great. I really enjoyed it. I, uh, I, uh, I think I held my own in the quiz, you which did. I was really worried about. <laughs> um, but uh, no, uh, the uh, I, I'm really I'm looking forward to to uh, to, uh, and I'm hanging out now as I'm writing with this uh, jewel thief Arthur Barry, and uh, he's. He's a much more likable character, and okay, uh, I've, I've I've had my fill of of, uh, of Doctor Cream. But anyway, there's there's information on there's a write up on my website if people want to check it out. I'm I'm cool. hoping to have, I'm hoping to have it uh, wrapped up 2023, so maybe another year year and a half, two years. Uh, but this has been great. Look, thank you very much. I appreciate all the questions and and. Uh, and the, the general fun and mayhem we've had tonight. It's yes, great. mayhem. We're very good at mayhem here. It's, yeah. it's a thing that we do quite well. Anna Lopez says thank you and thanks all the peculiars for another great conversation. And thank you to you, our viewers, our listeners, for being here for our last two seasons, for getting ready to start the next season at a place where, if you're weird, you're family. You got the blue bottom blues when you wake up in the No, no, and to
now.